Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. There's been a lot of speculation about what the next 12 months may bring for the United Kingdom and even for the longer term. What will the U.K. be like in 2030 when it's post-COVID, post-Brexit, and post-Boris Johnson? Michael Patrick MacDonald, an American activist who lives part of the year in both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, joins us now. He's the author of a number of books, including the American Book Award-winning, best-selling memoir, All Souls, A Family Story from Southie, and also Easter Rising, A Memoir of Roots and Rebellion. And he's been serving as a special correspondent on this show, covering events in Ireland. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to our show. Hi, Michael. Hey, Leonard. It's good to be back. And haven't you just recently returned from the capital of Northern Ireland, Belfast? Uh, are all the things we're going to talk about big stories in the news these days? Yes, absolutely. I was in the, actually in the north of Ireland, six county, the, the entire six counties, for about a month with uh, 20 students, as well as doing this ongoing uh, storytelling project I do with communities there. But all of the conversation in the streets... Um, is kind of about the fraught situation that uh, the North is in at the moment uh, in terms of its relationship with the United Kingdom. And there's a lot of hopeful conversation about the reunification of Ireland, given some of Sinn Féin's uh, big electoral and poll, electoral victories in the North and poll victories in the South. Well, how hasn't Britain proposed scuttling the post-Brexit trade rules in Northern Ireland? How would that work? Um, so post-Brexit, there, uh, there has been what's called the protocol implemented in the North. Um, one of the big contentious issues. The Northern Ireland North, Protocol. Yeah, the Northern Ireland Protocol. So just to back up a little bit, um, of course, Northern Ireland uh, voted to remain uh, in the European Union, as did Scotland. Uh, and uh, the, the biggest pro-Brexit vote was, of course, in England and Wales. Um, the, the fact that a majority of people in Northern Ireland voted to remain part of the European Union and not to Brexit with England um, means that the majority is getting a little bit more diverse and interesting in Northern Ireland. So we can assume that most nationalist Republicans, Irish-identified people um, who happen to be Catholic, uh, would would have voted to remain in the European Union to not go with Britain. Uh, but it also means because a majority voted for that, it also meant that uh, quite a few Protestant unionist loyalist uh, people also voted to remain in the European Union. Given that a majority of people in Northern Ireland want to remain in the European Union, uh, and also that a, an even larger majority would not want a return to the hard border um, that was at the at the center of uh, the war that we know as the Troubles, the border on the island of Ireland between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which was dissolved in uh, as a result of the Good Friday Agreement, the peace agreement, an international agreement. That border was uh, being threatened to be brought back by Brexit because you would need customs checks between Northern Ireland, which would be in the UK, and the Republic of Ireland, which would be in the European Union. So there was a threat of a hard border coming back. The solution was what's called the Northern Ireland Protocol, which instead puts checks at the Irish Sea between mainland UK and Northern Ireland. 
so therefore that and that essentially to in the eyes of the unionist loyalist populations in Northern Ireland that essentially looked like uh, um, a kind of a cutoff, a separation from mainland UK. Of course, unionist loyalists uh, who are overwhelmingly Protestant would want to remain part of the United Kingdom. Putting a border in the Irish Sea in their eyes creates uh, a united Ireland. Um, so there's been a lot of protest against the Northern Ireland Protocol and by by some you know hard right wing uh, loyalists pro unionist party members yes yeah, pro unionist pro union with the United Kingdom uh, there have been protests against the Northern Ireland Protocol which really you know the Northern Ireland Protocol most importantly uh, um, honored the Good Friday Agreement the peace the internationally recognized peace agreement of the late 90s of 1998 and it uh, was put in place to keep the peace and to prevent uh, a war from coming back, essentially, uh, with a which would come back with a border. Um, hard right-wing unionist loyalists oppose the Northern Ireland Protocol because it looks like United Ireland to them, and they don't want to be part of United Ireland. Um, and now what we're seeing is that Boris Johnson is reneging on the withdrawal agreement between the United Kingdom and the EU and proposing uh, to change the protocol. Uh, so he, he wants to basically uh, violate international law um, to, to basically to appease the hard right of his own conservative party, the Tories in, in Westminster, but also to appease the Democratic Unionist Party, the hard right wing evangelical uh, party that once dominated uh, Northern Ireland's politics, the because those, you know, the, the, those members of the DUP would vote uh, for Boris Johnson, whose political career is, of course, in trouble. Well, this uh, agreement has been widely viewed as a breach of uh, Britain's Brexit, agree Brexit agreement with the European Union. Hasn't the EU announced legal steps to retaliate? Yeah, the EU is threatening to sue um, sue the United Kingdom for violating um, an international agreement, um, and and they're you know they're, they're kind of at a standstill, I think. Um, but Boris Johnson uh, doesn't mind, you know, being you know of, of the kind of Trumpy populist brand. He doesn't mind. You know, violating international law and 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 uh, threatening the Good Friday Agreement and the peace, the hard won peace of Ireland, and threatening a trade war between the EU and the UK. He doesn't mind that stuff because that inflammatory stuff actually can boost him in their kind of right wing, the you know populist end of his party. I mean, he's being opposed not only by, of course, Labour is opposing him in his wanting to violate international agreement, but um, members of his own party, uh, you know, uh, the Theresa May uh, wing of his party are also... They're saying it um, violates Albert. international law because yeah. it would unilaterally eliminate border checks on goods flowing from mainland Britain to Northern Ireland. But didn't... And threatens relationships with the, relationship with the EU. I mean, the, the UK is kind of going it alone and really doesn't have a whole lot of friends in the world. Um, so uh, this threatens to, I think, in their eyes, at least, you know, more moderate conservatives' eyes, threatens uh, trade, threatens, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, finances of Britain and so forth. 
Now, Boris Johnson warned that Britain might leave the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, an institution that Winston Churchill helped create after World War II. And the last country that left that convention was Russia after it invaded Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's all, Boris Johnson's also on a tour of, um, you know, Europe, uh, you know, trying to... Uh, boost opposition to Russia and, and cut off investments, but he has no moral standing at all in his opposition to Russia, as you're saying. Hasn't this all um, actually helped him a bit with the Brexiteers in the Conservative Party and also in, in grabbing headlines in pro-Tory newspapers that yes. might otherwise dwell on economic woes or, or the other problems that the prime minister has? It's it's uh, boosted him with hard right Brexiteers, but it's also cost them, I believe, two recent by-elections. Um, so, you know, in, in the UK. So he is at risk uh, politically at the moment as uh, Labour took um, took uh, a seat uh, from Conservatives as well as a, um, more, the Liberal Democrats took a seat from Conservatives. So I would... I would argue that it's definitely hurting him in the long run. Well, how much has the political landscape in Britain changed since Boris Johnson survived that no-confidence vote uh, in his Conservative Party just a little less than than a month ago? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, th this particular conversation about Northern Ireland has uh, hurt him even more. Um, when you have people like Theresa May and, and uh, that wing of Conservatives um, speaking out against him, you know, kind of saying a lot of the same things that Labour and Liberal Democrats are saying. Um, I, I think that uh, the landscape is kind of uh, shifting not in his favor. I have to admit that I once interviewed Boris Johnson. Um, I'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the same time, so what you also have going on is that Sinn Féin, so the Democratic Unionist Party, just to back up a little bit, the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, would be heirs to the very right-wing, evangelical, Protestant ascendancy of the place called Northern Ireland, a place that was created in the early 20th century um, when Britain partitioned the island of Ireland uh, and created a gerrymandered state called Northern Ireland which would um, assure a Protestant unionist loyal to the crown majority and uh, would do as it likes, whether gerrymandering or um, keeping Irish identified Catholic nationalist Republicans um, out of all access to jobs, housing, education, even the right to vote in the early 70s. So th this is the hard wing of 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 unionists. Um, the, the Ian Paisley party, people would be familiar with Ian Paisley, of course, DUP would be of that wing. And they, up until just last month, held the majority of votes in this place called Northern Ireland. So um, what's changed completely is that in the May election in uh, Northern Ireland recently, Sinn Féin uh, won uh, 27 of the 90 assembly seats, the DUP won 24. And then the 
kind of middle ground alliance party, which is agnostic on the constitutional question, um, kind of neutral on whether the North, whether Northern Ireland is part of the UK or part of Ireland, uh, but is also more progressive and and anti-DUP. The Alliance Party got 17 seats as well. So Sinn Féin, 27, DUP, 24, Alliance, 17. Sinn Féin got 29% of the vote to the DUP's 21%. This is a huge shift in a century-long um, uh, situation. And since the, uh, uh, this state has existed for 100 years, so this is the first time you're seeing a nationalist, not only nationalist, but Republican majority in Northern Ireland. By Republican, I mean um, a little bit more uh, hardline than nationalist. Sinn Féin was, of course, the political wing associated with the Irish Republican Army that engaged in armed struggle against the British state, uh, work, you know, fighting toward um, an, an independent, sovereign Irish Republic. So Sinn Féin is now the majority party in the north of Ireland, in the six counties called Northern Ireland. As a result of that, the DUP, the hardline right-wing evangelical Ian Paisley party, decides to boycott the assembly. Rather than going into a power-sharing assembly with Sinn Féin, which was established by the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, rather than going into that Power sharing assembly, Sinn Fein would, which in which Sinn Fein would be the, would hold the uh, the the first minister seat, and the DUP for the first time, um, would hold uh, on behalf of unionism, behold a, um, a, a deputy minister seat. The DUP instead of going into a power sharing assembly, boycotts now the assembly on the grounds that the. Um, the Northern Ireland Protocol, which has kept the peace essentially and obeyed international law, um, they, they're boycotting until the protocol will be scrapped. And that is where Boris Johnson steps in but, and agrees, agrees with them. But uh, weren't the issues really local? Michelle O'Neill, Sinn Féin's leader in the North and now the first minister-designate, focused on the cost of living crisis because the, the DUP was seen as handling the underfunding of health services badly. Absolutely. The DUP would just uh, would, you know, th this would be a competition between much more fiscally um, liberal uh, party and a very conservative party uh, that would definitely be at the forefront, um, as it is everywhere these days, definitely here. Uh, that would be at the forefront of people's uh, uh, votes. However, uh, I don't think anyone would uh, vote for Sinn Féin without also understanding that this is the Nationalist Republican Party. This is the party whose name, Sinn Féin, means ourselves, which is entirely about Irish sovereignty away from the British state, away from monarchy. And it's the party, the leading party of the Republic of Ireland. Yes, it's the leading party the down name. south. Is it the same party, party, really, or is it just the same name? It's the same party. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's the same party. It might have different uh, go kind of different directions in the two jurisdictions in terms of its emphases and so forth. But the other thing is that, I mean, as I uh, back to the north, I just want to emphasize that you don't vote for Sinn Féin without knowing that this is about sovereignty. Uh, that's what the name of the party means. But you also it's hard. You know, there are younger people voting, of course, who wouldn't have supported the armed struggle. Uh, however, 
you know, you really can't erase that from their history, that they're, this is the political wing of the Irish Republican Army. So um, I think people are also softening you know, I think people that, you know, were, were staunchly opposed to the Irish Republican Army and to the uh, armed wing of nationalism um, are kind of softening on that, partly because Britain has just been so horrendous in terms of its dealings with Brexit, with the Good Friday Agreement, um, with the with the notion of a of a softened border on the island of Ireland. Um, people are just sick to death of the DUP and of unionism. And so I think that's really affected people as influenced people's kind of softening on the history of armed struggle, I believe. Um, but yeah, so down to the South, uh, as it's called, which it's not really the South, uh, the 26 county, what's referred to as the Republic of Ireland, the 26 counties. Uh, well, it is an independent country. It's an independent country. Yep. The Republic of Ireland. Uh, it's referred to as the South, but um, I just want to point out that it's one of its counties. Donegal is the most northern county on the island of Ireland. Huh. So it's, it's funny how we refer to it as the South, but it actually holds one of the most northern counties. The reason for that, that's that points to the fact that the statelet of Northern Ireland was a gerrymandered um, construction, gerry, a, a colonial gerrymandered construction invented by Britain. And it intentionally carved out uh, northern counties, left out of, of the, the Northern Ireland construction, any northern counties that would not have assured a unionist loyal to the British crown majority of Protestants. So Donegal being a very Catholic northern county on the island of Ireland was left out because including it, it would, of course, um, led to a non-loyal to the British crown majority in this place called Northern Ireland. So just want to point that out. But um, the Republic of Ireland, the 26 county Republic of Ireland, often referred to as the South, um, also is seeing huge gains for Sinn Féin. And in the 2020 election, uh, Sinn Féin got the majority of votes in in the South, in the Republic, 24 uh, percent. But they got 37 seats because they didn't go for as many seats as they probably could have got, got, gotten. Fianna Fáil, the kind of mm, centrist, uh, maybe center right uh, these days, uh, political party of the South got 38 seats. So they had one seat more and they went into a majority coalition with Fine Gael, which would be um, also a center-right. Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are both kind of center-right parties. One used to be our Democrats, one used to be our Republicans. Um, they both kind of have merged. Uh, they're in coalition. But Sinn Féin got, uh, as a party, got the majority of votes um, in the South. Now, even more uh, more victory has come to them in a recent polls, which showed that in the South, Sinn Féin uh, get uh, 37% of the vote to Fine Gael's 23% and Fine Fáil's 22%. My guest uh, on, on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Michael Patrick McDonald, uh, one of our regulars, reports on what goes on in Ireland, but also in its connection with the rest of the UK. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. How has the Biden administration responded to the changes? Hasn't it expressed fears that they could jeopardize the Good Friday Agreement, which ended, as you mentioned earlier, decades of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland? 
Yes, um, uh, President Biden uh, has issued warnings to um, to the United Kingdom to um, to not threaten the fragile peace established by the Good Friday Agreement, to not bring back a border, and now are have been uh, sending delegates over to um, threaten them essentially to uh, not touch the Northern Ireland Protocol, which has maintained the peace as well. Well, Mr. Johnson Um, denied that the legislation violated international law, and he argued that far from undermining the Good Friday Agreement, Britain was meeting its higher legal obligation of preserving the accord. And British officials also invoked the doctrine of necessity, a principle of international law that allows a state to temporarily disregard its obligations if it's facing a grave and imminent peril. Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's been really interesting to see his wording that, in fact, he's protecting the Good Friday Agreement, protecting um, peace in Ireland. And his argument would be that um, the the Northern Ireland Protocol has has upset unionists so much that that threatens the peace. Um, It, 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 you know, there there has been uh, some conflagration uh, as a result of that, but it's not, it's really kind of, when you look at some of these protests, they're nothing compared to um, much larger marches in favor of rights in Northern Ireland, rights that have been denied by the Democratic Unionist Party, marches in favor of women's rights, of the right to choose, marches in favor of uh, marriage equality, and more recently, marches in favor of um, the Irish Language Act, uh, the, the rights of Irish language speech speakers in their own country. Uh, Irish language has been, has you know, in, in the, a big part of this history has has been one of the um, uh, largest uh, scapegoats of, of British supremacy, British domination of this island. And uh, it was decimated as a result of British colonization of Ireland. A lot of people in the States don't even know that uh, Irish people have a language, the Irish language, Gaelga, which was pretty much outlawed and banned throughout the history of colonization. But when the Northern Ireland state was carved out um, in the early 20th century to maintain a Protestant unionist loyal to the crown majority in this statelet, it also banned, continued to ban the Irish language. Um, recently, Irish language activists, young people have been at the forefront of a movement that's not only calling for Irish language rights, but that is also intersectional in bringing together people who favor all rights, who want to live in a more progressive place, a more progressive place like the Republic of Ireland has become, actually. So that has also helped lean in younger, maybe more moderate young people who would be from a Protestant background, but who are not evangelical right-wingers. That has, uh, that kind of uh, intersectional, if you will, rights movement has brought um, some younger people away from um, unionism and loyalism and toward perhaps the Alliance Party, but sometimes definitely toward Sinn Féin and toward a conversation about a united Ireland. Well, Republic of Ireland's referendums on abortion and same-sex marriage have made it feel more like a modern progressive state. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess they don't have uh, justices uh, on their Supreme (laughs) Court like Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas. But isn't that come as a surprise? Because the thinking was that the Republic of Ireland, being majority Catholic, 
mm-hmm. would be opposed to those sorts of things. And, and, the, and Northern Ireland, which was Protestant and perhaps mm-hmm. a bit more secular, would mm-hmm. have been open to those sorts of things. So what's going on here? Yeah, it's very different from our uh, perceptions of these um, religious identifications. So Catholic, both in the North and the South, I would say would be small C and pretty secular. And and a lot of people would probably be um, identified more as kind of um, cultural Catholics, you know, that Catholic just, you know, the divisions of Northern Ireland and of this entire history are often portrayed as a religious war. Um the, the colonized people of Ireland, the Irish identified people who would lean toward being nationalist and many of them being Republicans seeking sovereignty away from Britain and away from monarchy, that population would be descendants of the Irish native peasantry who happened to be Catholic. So happened to is the is the key uh, there. And the ascendancy, the dominant class of people that benefited from colonization that were actually the settler colonial class that were planted in places like Ulster in the north of Ireland, they happened to be Protestant. And they actually, even though this is not a religious war, it would be the, the ascendancy, the descendants of the settler colonial class uh, in the north of Ireland, people that were brought uh, to settle the land of the natives in Northern Ireland, people brought from Scotland, as well as Anglo lords, landlords, and so forth. That population, kind of the descendants of who gained from colonialism, they would um, not only happen to be Protestant, but Protestantism would be part of what they're trying to maintain in their kind of cultural ascendancy. that population um, would tend to be the evangelical brand of, of Protestantism for the most part, historically. Um, and, and Catholics in the North and South would be so that the Southern state, when it was created, when Northern Ireland was partitioned off from the rest of the island and the Republic of Ireland was created, um, that was created kind of in response to, a, a, first of all, an Easter Rising, a revolution led by um, led by sovereigntist people who wanted to separate from Britain, who were Republican, um, and the war for independence. But the Easter Rising, uh, being led by a lot of kind of socialist left-wing Republicans in Dublin, um, resulted in the execution of its leaders. Its leaders, uh, the leaders that were executed, were pretty much the ones of the more left brand of Republicanism. What Britain did was kind of allow to survive some of the uh, more conservative Catholic uh, leaders. As a result, you have this revolution, you have this war for independence, and in the aftermath of the independence of the 26 counties of the Republic of Ireland, you have the dominance of a more conservative, Catholic, theocratic leadership. Um, so Ireland did in the 20th, the Republic of Ireland in the 20th century did become more or less a Catholic theocracy. And that was a really unfortunate kind of counter revolution, mm-hmm. if you will, to the socialist Republican revolution that was attempted in the early 20th century. So that was an unfortunate thing. Um, and what's happened in recent years in the South and in the North is that people who are still might identify as Catholic culturally, and it kind of refers to their connection to the 
um, native Irish identified peasantry of Ireland, <clears throat> that population has moved away from the church, the, the church hierarchy. And that's as a result of like here, like everywhere, a lot of the abuses of the church that were revealed, um, physical, sexual abuse, as well as corruption. And so there is no longer a kind of Catholic theocracy leading the Republic of Ireland in the South. Uh, it has become a really progressive state. So when it got rid of the church, essentially, um, it it um, ended up just coming forth with this generosity, hospitality, kindness, politics of kindness and hospitality that Ireland really is often known for, but has never been allowed to, you know, in, in the leadership position. What's that? What that has meant um, in terms of votes, the vote for um, a choice, a referendum on choice um, in, in the Republic of Ireland got 66%. That's a number that you would not get in even some of the most progressive constituencies in the United States. Um, 66% in front in, in favor of choice. choice in the Republic of Ireland. The marriage equality vote, and again, keep in mind, these are votes. These are not their Supreme Court. This is, these are votes. Um 66% in favor of choice, in favor of marriage equality, 62%. That also is a number you wouldn't get even even some of the most progressive constituencies in the United States. Um, Ireland also was the first country in the world to, um, to legislate marriage equality um, by a vote rather than having to rely on courts. So it's the first country in the world to have marriage equality. Um, so that's an incredible that's it goes against all of our perceptions of Catholic Ireland of um, of the 20th century. Uh, that is also a place that is being looked to, of course, by younger and more progressive people in Northern Ireland as as a kind of model. They would well, much rather be part of a state like that rather than a part, a part of a state dominated by very evangelical um, leadership. Well, how, how has that played out? Hasn't the latest census revealed that for the first time since the territory was carved out of the rest of Ireland 101 years ago, there are more Catholics than Protestants living yeah. in Northern Ireland? <clears throat> yes, and, and that, that's true. Are, are, so, they, are they the liberal Catholics of, of well, the I would Republic say of they, Ireland when, or perhaps more religious ones? When they say, um, when, 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 it's, when, when we use the term Catholic, that would be, probably means someone who grew up Catholic. It doesn't necessarily mean someone who goes to church. Um, so what it means to me when I hear the majority of people are Catholic in the six counties of Northern Ireland, what that means is the majority of people are of the Irish identified population that got the, you know, the bad end, <laughs> the, 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 the population that was colonized, basically. Uh, when Ireland was colonized. So descendants of the, the population that was colonized, that these are Irish identified people who would overwhelmingly be nationalist and and many of whom would be also, especially these days, increasingly Republican, which is just a little bit more, um, you know, more than just a, being about independence, being about a complete stripping of all colonial, stripping away of all colonial vestiges. Republican used to mean um, a nationalist who uh, condoned armed struggle. Since the Good Friday Agreement, Republican can sometimes mean that, but um, in, and often will mean not apologetic about the armed struggle, about the Republican armed struggle, uh, but, but it essentially means um, 
not only sovereigntist, but also stripping away all the vestiges of British colonialism on the island of Ireland. So, um, so that's what Catholic means to me is that population, descendants of the, uh, or people who would be identical, who would identify themselves with the, um, the, the, identify themselves as Irish, essentially. And, um, when we say Protestant up there, that often will mean church going, but it doesn't necessarily mean church going. It could be a lot of young people, even in that poll. So that doesn't even account for the fact that a whole lot of people who would be considered Protestant because they grew up Protestant and who are descendants of the more colonial class, the people who benefited from colonialism historically, the ascendancy who, who kind of dominated the place with political and cultural hegemony, their children and, and, or, and, you know, teenagers and young adults are, uh, even if they, even if they identify as part of that heritage are leaning more progressive, at least toward the Alliance party, which is neutral on the constitutional question. And some of them even toward uh, Sinn Féin and many of them um, in the North looking at least toward uh, a kind of existence similar to what young people like themselves uh, have in the South, in the Republic of Ireland, well, what in terms ha- of progressive values and so forth. What about the immigrants who came in as a result of uh, <clears throat> the, the old, the, the membership in the EU before Brexit? Hmm. Uh, have they integrated in the people from the the Middle East, for example? Mm-hmm. Uh, have they integrated into the society because they're neither Catholic nor Protestant? Right. So that's an interesting population, and and so that that's a population that kind of messes with this whole binary of Catholic Protestant or nationalist uh, nationalist Unionist or um, Republican. All those that those binary identifications are being blurred partly because of newer populations from Syria, um, from parts of Africa, as well as um, a newly visible population of LGBTQ people who are also not primarily identifying as Catholic or Protestant or nationalist or, or unionist. Um, so that, that, that newer population of uh, migrants to Northern Ireland would tend to be housed in Protestant unionist loyalist communities. The reason for that is because the Catholic nationalist Republican community being the historically oppressed community of Northern Ireland being was, was, uh, was, you know, kept out of access to uh, jobs and, and especially housing. Right. So they would be underhoused. The Catholic Nationalist Republican community would be underhoused. The Protestant Unionist Loyalist community would be overhoused. There would be more apartments available in their um, in their communities. Uh, what's unfortunate about that is that newcomers, who are often people of color, some from Eastern European countries, who are also can be victims of races like kind of Brexiteer racism in England as well as by loyalists in the north of Ireland. Um, Eastern Europeans, Africans, Syrians, and so forth, if they come to Northern Ireland, they're welcome in Catholic nationalist Republican communities. In fact, there are there are flat like flags from all over the world in Catholic nationalist Republican communities. There are signs that go up that say refugees welcome here. Um, you see that everywhere in those communities that are historically oppressed and to identify in solidarity with uh, people who come from places um, where they had they had to flee, basically. Um, 
so they're welcome in those communities, but there's just there's just no like people are underhoused. Families are you know two or three families are sharing uh, one apartment in those communities. In the Protestant Unionist loyalist communities, where the where there are where there is space for newcomers, um, they are not welcome. So it's in those communities where uh, newcomers might be housed and might face uh, racist attacks on them. And that when we say racist attacks over there, that means not only people of color, but it also means Eastern European over there. The term, Mm -hmm. um, you know, term race and racism applies in ways that we 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 usually call kind of an ethnic identity. They. They um, refer to that like anti-Polish racism or anti-Lithuanian uh, ra- racism and so forth. But whether from Eastern European countries, African countries or Syria, they will be victims of racist attacks in Protestant unionist loyalist communities. And those are the only places where there is housing available because that those communities historically got more housing, got more uh, access to jobs and so forth. Um, they were of the ascendancy. So that's an unfortunate thing. But in a lot of movements that I'm actually, I'm I, so the storytelling project that I do in the north of Ireland is one that I also do in Boston with survivors of homicide victims, survivors of loss to the opioid epidemic. I do that in the north of Ireland um, and with a coalition of people that are responding to the high rates of suicide um, and mental health issues in a post so-called post troubles, Northern Ireland. Uh, people who are people of people who have inherited a lot of the traumas of the past. So mental health, um, this mental health coalition that's developed is has a whole lot of Catholic nationalist Republican people in it. It also has some Protestant unionist loyalist people. And it's also has uh, people from organizations working for the rights of refugees and asylum seekers to work while they're awaiting decisions and so forth. So it's a really kind of multicultural, multicultural coalitions are emerging in Northern Ireland in ways that we've never seen before, put it that way. And the binaries are getting dismantled. The binaries of just this being a place that's only about being Catholic or Protestant, nationalist or unionist. I have to take a break now. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're back with Michael Patrick McDonald, who lives uh, part of the year in both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, and is the author of a number of books, including the American Book Award-winning best-selling memoir, All Souls, a family story from Southie, and also Easter Rising, a memoir of roots and rebellion. And um, I wanted, you, you mentioned Scotland, and uh, mm-hmm. Scotland is part of this story as well, in an odd way. Um, Mm -hmm. Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, announced this week plans for a referendum next year on Scottish independence. And that's reopening the battle over her country's future. And and uh, and she's challenging Britain's top judges to to prevent it from holding it. Mm -hmm. And and this is something that has also been um, pushed forward by by Brexit, essentially, because, you know, the Scottish Nationalist Party uh, led a referendum 
um, in what was it uh, in 2014 or 15, and they they lost that referendum for independence for Scottish independence away from the UK. They lost uh, 50, the 55% majority voted to remain part of the United Kingdom. That so was that in was 2014. 2014. So in 2014, 55% of Scottish people vote to remain part of the United Kingdom. Two years later, you have Brexit. Mm. And 2016, Scotland votes 62% to remain in the European Union. So, of course, that's going to shift if there's another vote, another referendum on uh, Scottish independence that could very well shift as a result of Brexit, as a result of the fact that a huge, I mean, it's a huge majority, 60 percent voting to remain in the European Union and yet being pulled out of the European Union by the United Kingdom's um, decision to Brexit. So a whole lot of people are also experiencing um, economic hardships as a result of um, Brexit. Also, their young people don't get to go to university in the European Union as easily. Uh, there were some provisions on that allowing for that, but they're, it's just they're not part of the European Union that has completely changed a whole lot of people's lives. And, um, and the hubris of England, of Little England and Boris Johnson has also, I think, increased the popularity of the notion of Scotland um, uh, leaving the United Kingdom and being part of the European Union. Also keep in mind that, uh, you know, Scotland has oil, Scotland has economic um, economic reserves uh, that, of course, England wants to hold on to. Um, Would it be able uh, to survive as an independent country? Um, I, according to the Scottish Nationalist Party, yes. And um, they also would have a whole lot of friends in the European Union, including in a newly united Ireland. <laughs> Some people even talk about uniting the island of Ireland with Scotland because there is a lot of common, uh, you know, the co- common cultural threads there being Gaelic people and so forth, having speaking Gaelic languages and, and so forth. But that that's probably not going to happen. But um, it is, you know, it is whispered. There's a lot of affinity between the two places. Uh, nationalists in the north of Ireland and people in the Republic of Ireland in general have a lot of affinity for Scottish people and a lot of sympathy for their desire to leave the United Kingdom. Um, the United Kingdom is just and becoming there's been a, a lot of cross fertilization, hasn't there? Yeah. So over the years, yeah, people you, you find that in Ulster in the north of Ireland, whether you're talking about Donegal or the six counties of Northern Ireland, um, over the centuries, people have just gone back and forth. I mean, you can see Scotland from from Northern Ireland um, and a boat, a boat's, you know, it's a very brief boat ride um, across the channel. And um, people in Donegal go to work sometimes um, daily or every other day in Glasgow uh, by hopping on a plane that takes about 30 minutes. Uh, they're very close. There's a lot of cultural affinity. There's a lot of sim- you know sympathies for you know not wanting to be part of uh, the remnants of this dying empire uh, dominated by a kind of... Um, useless and uh, money-sucking monarchy that's a historic receiver of stolen goods uh, throughout the world. Uh, both, both of them have that kind of affinity, and they also have familial ties. Um, Northern Ireland and Scotland, I mean, so many people in Northern Ireland have uh, siblings and cousins and aunts and uncles in Scotland and vice versa. 
Now, uh, Nicola Sturgeon proposed October 19, 2023 as the date mm-hmm. for the second vote on independence. Um, and that's something uh, Boris Johnson has ruled out. She mm-hmm. needs her referendum to be legal because she wants Scotland to be able to rejoin the European Union. Mm-hmm. Everything, yeah. Everything's been put, put on hold because of the pandemic. Is, are things changing because the pandemic uh, danger is dying down? Yeah, I think it, it, things are changing. Things are kind of speeding up at a, at a really fast pace. I feel feel in every all aspects of all of our lives, right? But um, but over there, it's it's things are speeding up in terms of these conversations, in terms of be, building coalition, building uh, consensus around a lot of progressive issues, as, uh, around a lot of uh, independence issues. But but then you have a, a leadership like that of Boris Johnson which being that kind of populist do whatever I want leader that kind of thrives on being intransigent and controversial and saying, I'll break all the rules and, you know, to hell with everyone. Um, that's what you have in the way. Boris Johnson will not allow uh, that to happen. As long as he's in power, that's probably not going to happen. Same with the referendum on Irish reunification. And again, back to the uh, Brexit vote, Northern Ireland, the six counties of the place called Northern Ireland, a, you know, a partition gerrymandered um, remnant of colonialism um, in on the island of Ireland. In that six counties, 56 percent of the population voted to remain part of the European Union and to not Brexit with England. Um, and. And that's probably led to that majority has probably led to increased calls for Irish unification as well. Uh, but the referendum on Irish unity depends on is this part of the Good Friday. It's an unfortunate part of the Good Friday Agreement that um, that that referendum on Irish unity would also depend on uh, on uh, London. Basically, well, Boris Johnson uh, uh, isn't in a very strong position. He narrowly survived the recent no confidence mm-hmm. vote with just forty uh, percent of his own members of parliament seeking to oust him over mm-hmm. over the scandal about the lockdown breaking parties in Downing Street. And since then, he suffered two big electoral defeats in contests for right. parliamentary seats that have become vacant. Mm-hmm. So. Um, how much clout does he really have? And in the end, um, can we see a situation where maybe in another year he'll be gone and and everything will be a whole new, everything will be new again? I think are people, what I've seen is that people are estimating maybe 2024 uh, that'd be um, an election uh, called uh, 2024, 2025. I mean, hopefully sooner but um but you know it just continues to astound me how people of extreme minorities can thrive these days <laughs> i mean it's happening in our, in our country as well and uh and 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 it's like by hook or by crook you know um so i just don't uh trust that he'll be gone but that's just because uh of what we're witnessing politically, both in this country and over there. If a newly independent Scotland joined the European Union, wouldn't it have a customs and trade land border with England? Yeah, that would be difficult. Already it's, it's trading, its biggest trading partner. That might create a serious set of problems for both countries and, and the European Union, as similar to the disputes that we've been seeing uh, 
over our, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. With exactly. It would be difficult. But I think the benefits, personally, I believe that the benefits would outweigh um, any of the problems there. I mean, cer- certainly the UK is the biggest trading partner, but that doesn't have to be um, the truth for Scotland in the future. Maybe there are greater opportunities for them beyond. Michael, we have very limited time, but there was yeah. another thing I wanted to address. Isn't there... UK legislation that would end all legacy inquiries for British atrocities during the Troubles? Yeah, this is one of the most devious things happening in the north of Ireland at the moment. Um, The the United Kingdom has proposed uh, what they're calling a legacy and reconciliation um, bill. And, you know, that's kind of tricky wording there. It sounds really nice that they're working toward reconciliation. But what it would do essentially is end all inquests into or or suits, um, uh, investigations into uh, massacres committed by the British state during the Troubles, collusion between the British state and loyalist paramilitaries uh, during the war called the Troubles in the late 20th century. There were lots of massacres. People have heard of Bloody Sunday Massacre. There was also the Bally Murphy Massacre, um, the Spring Hill Massacre. It goes on and on and on and on. Situations where British soldiers opened fire on unarmed civilians, killing them. Uh, and there have been inquiries, inquests into these. It's been slow moving. We're talking about you know decades of movement led by families of the victims. Um, and this would end get, all of that to get to the truth. Well, they're going to end all that. They're claiming to, they're you know they're calling this reconciliation that they'll that this will lead to reconciliation, and they're going to have pro, they're going to instead have independent, i.e. British investigators looking into all claims, all, well, looking into all deaths during the troubles, and making decisions and coming to the quote unquote truth about these things. Um, I, I, I teach uh, restorative and transformative justice and, you know, the pillars of really real, you know, conflict transformation and transformative justice processes. The pillars are truth is one pillar. Another one is uh, is accountability. Huge. That will be absent from this completely. Well, Another pillar is repair hugely absent from this and you can't even get to reconciliation you can't get to healing you can't get to forgiveness um if that's where people want to go you can't get to that good stuff of the fourth pillar unless you've dealt with truth real truth recovery and acknowledgement of truth accountability and repair um to just say that we're going to make decisions about what happened when and where and then we'll be reconciled is just um, an affront to all transformative justice logic to just um, basic, uh, you know, uh, social justice. Well, Great uh, Britain was one of the great colonial powers, one of the mm-hmm. most powerful countries in the world. And it looks like from judging from what we've been discussing, that it's in for a rough ride in the near future. <laughs> Yeah, and let me remind people that Ireland was the laboratory for British colonization of the world. Um, it was a staging ground. It was the first colony, and it will be, I think, the end of the United Kingdom. Well, thank you so much for being on our show again, Michael Patrick McDonald. Uh, you should check out his books, the American Book Award-winning, best-selling memoir, All Souls, A Family Story from Southie. 
Um, also, Easter Rising, A Memoir of Roots and Rebellion. And I look forward to your next visit to our show. Thank you so much, Michael. In person. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and my great thanks. Uh, we've come to the end of the show. So my great thanks to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Kaziah Glow, the executive producer of Leonard Lopate at Large, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Check us out also on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is lettertopate at wbai.org. Right now, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times and, and uh, to pay our transmitter fee at the Tower at Fort Times Square. It's $17,000 a month, and we're now over two months past due. So we're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, the number to call 212-209-2950. Please do it right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. It might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and we'd be happy to send you a number of perks, including a WBAI tote bag if you sign up to become a WBAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We, we don't take ads or foundation grants, uh, which allows us to be completely free speech radio, but also puts us often in a precarious uh, financial situation. Uh, other public radio stations do take what I would call ads, um, and they take other forms of money. We rely 100% on our listeners, and we're the only station in the New York area that does. So please call 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org and help support completely free speech radio, completely independent radio. And don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And from all of us at the station, we thank you very much. And we hope that you have a great holiday weekend and we will see you next week.